You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Alberto Savoya, Google engineer, innovator, and author of The Right It. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. At this very moment, millions of people around the world are working hard to bring to life new ideas that, when launched, will be successful. Some of these ideas will turn out to be stunning successes and have a major impact on the world and culture, the next Google, the next polio vaccine, the next Harry Potter series. Others will be smaller, more personal, but no less meaningful successes. A little neighborhood restaurant that becomes a favorite, a biography that doesn't make the bestseller list but tells an important story, a local nonprofit that cares for abandoned pets. At this very same moment, many other people are working equally hard to develop ideas that when launched will fail. Some of them will fail spectacularly, others will be smaller, more private, but no less painful failures. A home-based business that never takes off, a children's book that nobody wants to read, a charity for a cause that nobody cares enough about. So if you're currently developing or thinking about developing a new idea or part of a team that's working on a new idea, which group are you in? Or if at this moment you're just still planning, if this idea is just purely something in your mind that you want to do, which group do you think you will be in? Most people believe that they either are or will be in the first group, the group whose ideas will be successful. All they have to do is to work hard and execute well. Unfortunately, we know that that cannot be the case. Most new products, services, business, and initiatives will fail soon after their launch, regardless of how promising they sound, how much their developers committed to them, or how well you execute them. So this is a hard fact for us to accept. We believe that other people fail because they don't know what they're doing. They are losers that have no business being in that business. I believe I had good reason for my smugness because I, through luck, I had experienced a string of successes with only very few and relatively minor setbacks. Failure was something that afflicted other people. And then, just as I reached new heights of confidence and hubris, the beast of failure wrapped its tentacles around me and beat me in the ass. A hard to ignore an impossible to forget bite on that competent, well-prepared butt of mine. I could lick my wounds or bite back. I decided to bite back. Failure became my nemesis, defeating it my obsession. Teaching others how to defeat it became my mission. And this book is part of that mission. So that pretty much sets it up. Everybody wants to launch new ideas. You know, whether it's a business, a book, or a nonprofit, everybody thinks that their idea is bound to succeed, but the odds tell us the opposite story. Most of them are bound to fail. And when they fail, not only the developers, you know, the people that have idea pay the price, we, the entire world pays the price because entrepreneurs, ambitious people are our most valuable resource, you know, innovators, creative people. And if they focus on years to develop the wrong products, we all lose. So I'm here to help make sure that that first step is in the right direction. And that's my mission these days. I have this trilogy in mind. So first I focus my life on building things right. So as an engineer, I just... It has to work. And then what I've learned is that for myself and my colleagues, you know, many, many years, sometimes we build them right, but they're the wrong thing to build because nobody uses them. So I shifted my focus to making sure that we build the right thing because kind of building it right is something that we've nailed. But then what is the next problem? And I think we hinted at it throughout this conversation. The challenge is not coming up with new technology, right? The challenge is how do we humans adapt to this technology, put it to a good use? It's very easy to get people to open their mouths, and it's very hard to get them to open their wallets. I mean, and it has happened to me. In my startup that did not succeed, you know, whatever the excuse is. So how do you flip that around? So 
most market research, and again, we're using product, but this applies to everything. This applies to non-profit. It applies to government initiative, to social initiative. It applies to everything. The goal, the way you approach it is not asking people, if we build it, will you buy it? Or if I build it, will you use it, right? The approach has to be flipped over. If you buy it, we will build it. And that's what Pretotype it allows you to do because people say, well, how can they buy if I have nothing? So you cannot give them nothing. You cannot just give them the idea because the idea is abstract. You have to create an artifact or something that allows them to reveal their preference and their real interest. So I'll give you the most extreme example of that. And that is Tesla. So when Tesla was planning to build the Model 3, if you remember, they asked people to put down, they announced it, they show what it would look like, right? They didn't have the factory yet, but they had to build you know, a billion dollar factory. So they told people, if you're interested, you put down a thousand dollar deposit and you'll get your Tesla Model 3 you know, I don't know, in, two or, in two or three years. So when they got I think in the end it was like 450,000 people put down a $1,000 deposit. So you had 400, almost half a billion in the bank. Would you say, Mia, that's an indication of serious interest? At that point, I said, look, these people put $1,000 of their hard-earned money on a deposit for a car that they will have to wait three years to get. You really must want it, right? So, of course, that's an extreme, extreme example. But you have to try to get that attitude and bring it to your own smaller project, how can you get people to really manifest their interest in your idea and give you what I call Yoda? I mentioned at the beginning, data beats opinion, but anything can be made look like data. You can put random number on a spreadsheet that looks like data, or you can take data from other people at other times and use that. So Yoda stands for your own data, right? You must collect data for your specific idea and that data must come with skin in the game. What is skin in the game? In the Tesla example, it's a $1,000 check, right? If you're building a, if you're thinking of building a nonprofit, perhaps you get people to commit. Look, this is a founder thing. We just need, I don't know, $2,000 to get started. If you're really interested, are you willing to commit $20, right? It really, the amount is much less important than the fact that they're willing to give some skin in the game besides their opinion. So remember, if your idea, in order to be successful, based on your definition, needs people, right, people to buy it and people to use it, it's very important to get them to show real commitment and not just promises or opinions. One person stood up and wrote these words on the board. And honestly, I forget what the product was, but I never forgot those words. They wrote on the whiteboard, say it with numbers. And immediately, you know, I kind of wrote it down and that became another one of my mantras. So data beats opinion and say it with numbers. So I'm inventing a super pen, right? So this pen will write for 50 years. It never dries up, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? It costs $300. Would you buy it? Would you buy it? It doesn't matter, right? I do not trust it. People will tell you, yes, I will buy it. So let's assume that you're an investor, right? Or somebody wants to partner. I come to you and said, all right, I asked 70 people if they would pay $200 for this whiteboard marker that lasts forever. And, you know, 50% of people said, yes, they will buy it. Or I actually went into a store and I said, well, out of 100 people, 10 people actually paid or were willing to give me $200 for it. In the end, it's called stated preference versus revealed preference. And one of my favorite examples is like at McDonald's. They go and ask consumers, they come in, said, what item would you like to see more on the menu? So a lot of people say, 
well, my, my kids like chicken McNuggets, but I would like something health. So if you add salad, I would order salad. So McDonald's put salad on the menu. And then the same people that said they would order the salad, they come in and they smell the fried food and the good stuff and nobody orders the salad. So it's the difference between a stated preference and a revealed preference. People lie, not intentionally, right? How often in my mind I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go in and I'm going to have, a, I don't know, a, a healthy salad. And then you see, you know, fettuccine Alfredo or whatever. And it's like, ah, what the heck with it? I go with it. So that's very important to keep in mind as you validate your ideas. One of the readers of my first book, he wrote to me and said, Alberto, I had this idea for a diaper business, all right? <laughs> An environmental diaper business. And I so believed in it and I went into it. And then I realized that, you know, and it was working well, but I said, I hate being in the diaper business. I'm not even a parent. You know, what made me think that I would want to do it? So I said, you know, when you prototype an idea, you don't test how the idea will work in the market. You also feel how you would love working on that idea. You know, I would love to have an Italian restaurant, but I know the reality of working in a restaurant, right? So the dream and the romance when it comes to the actual world is very, very different. Before you make a long-term commitment, it's good to do experiments. Somebody works at the right company or has the right idea, and then we think that this person has all the answers. And what I've learned, and it keeps repeating, is that nobody really has all the answers and there really cannot be any experts in a complex field. You know, with long-term thinking, your best bet is to do short-term experiments and trust the data, especially when you have experts that come up with conflicting opinions. Who do you believe? So the best tool that we have is to come up with hypotheses and then to do small experiments. We came up with this expression, fall in love with the problem, flirt with the solutions, which means say, if you want to solve, you know, whatever big problem you're after, big or small, stick to that problem, say, I'm going to solve it, but do not fall in love with the first solution that comes to mind, because very likely that's not going to work. And then if you focus on the solution, all your attention goes on that as opposed to the problem. And you try to fit your solution into the problem, even if it's not a good fit. And that pretty much ruins everything. I think when most entrepreneurs fail, it's because they fell in love with their solution instead of the problem. You don't, you don't quit with the problem, you know, with the thing that you want to solve, but you must be able to quit and give up if the particular solution that you've worked on doesn't seem to give you the results that you want. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.